0: The media landscape in America is busted. Americans are on to the omissions, the half-truths, and the outright lies being propagated against we, the people. Your host, Tom Harris, will bring you the other side of the story.
1: Climate change alarmists constantly tell us that the world is coming to an end, that we will soon come to an unalterable catastrophe if we don't reduce our emissions. Yet following their plans would lead us to a world without reliable power. And what's more, it would result in no benefit for the environment. To discuss all this, I'm joined by two people. First of all, my guest co-host, that's Mary Jean Harris, my daughter, of course. She has a master's in physics from the Perimeter Institute, and she's a private business person running a business here in Ottawa. So Mary Jean, was what I said true or is it exaggerated?
2: You're right. And so we need to find a way to combat the myths surrounding the climate debate. If people come to see that the foundation the climate activists stand on isn't sound, they won't be willing to put billions of dollars towards these all-encompassing policies.
1: You're right. Many of these myths have become so ingrained in the public mind, they have ceased to even question the possibility that they could be false. They take it as a fact that humans are causing dangerous climate change and that nearly all scientists are unanimous in their agreement. But if you dig a bit deeper, ah, it's clear that that isn't the case at all.
2: Yes, we definitely need to hear both sides of the story about climate and energy might sound exaggerated, but our entire civilization could actually be at risk if the climate activists have their way.
1: That's right, especially here in Canada, where we had minus 31 Celsius in, in Ottawa just a few days ago. I mean, imagine what that would be like without enough electricity and power. But uh, our guest today is Linnea Lucan, who is an expert at debunking climate change myths. Hey, Mary Jean, why don't you introduce Linnea?
2: Yeah, for sure. Uh, Linnea Lucan is a research fellow with the Arthur B. Robinson Center on Climate and Environmental Policy. When she was an intern with the Heartland Institute in 2018, she co-authored a policy brief debunking four persistent myths about hydraulic fracturing. Lucan graduated from the University of Wyoming in 2018 with a B.S. in petroleum engineering and a minor in geology. In college, she was active in her sorority, the UW Shooting Sports Team, and College Republicans, as well as a variety of engineering organizations. Before coming to Heartland, she worked in the Gulf of Mexico on deepwater drill ships as a logging geologist. Lucan grew up in Killdeer, Illinois, and currently lives in South Carolina.
3: Well, welcome to the show, Linnea. Thanks for joining us.
1: So welcome to the show, Linnea. It's great to have you on.
3: Thank you very much. I'm overjoyed to be on the program today.
1: Okay, well, we're going to go through some climate myths. I'm going to read out, you know, what the people in the public generally think. And you can tell me because you've written on all of these topics. And by the way, I alert people go to the heartland.org website, and you can read Linnea's writings on all of these topics. So this is really great. So Linnea, the first myth I'd like you to talk about is the idea that 97% 97% of scientists agree that humans are causing dangerous climate change. Is that really true?
3: Well, that, one, that one's definitely one of the more popular claims out there. So the reality of this claim is that although the consensus narrative kind of frames it as the majority of scientists believe that climate change is a immediate threat, it's a catastrophe, that's the way that they tend to phrase it. But when you look at the actual um, interviews and the data, it turns out that what really happens is a majority of scientists believe that the climate is changing. And a Mm -hmm. lot of them think that human emissions of greenhouse gases may have some degree of impact on that. Now, the level of degree is different from- one scientist to the next. Mm -hmm. Um, And there have been more recent polls, for example, some that Heartland has put out um, that found that only about 30% of members of the American Meteorological Society, for example, are really worried about climate change. Um, Around 28% said that they're not very worried, but most people said that they were either somewhat which, you know, is kind of minor or not at all.
1: Huh? wow. So this whole idea that the vast majority of scientists are afraid of a global catastrophe, it doesn't bear out in your call. No, (laughs) not.
3: Most people are not overly alarmist about (laughs) it. Um, Regardless of what you might read in, you know, I don't know, the... um, political summaries that are given out in the IPCC, even those scientists who are working there, when you actually read the text of the IPCC reports, they're very Mm non-alarmist. They don't have a whole lot um, to say, you know, that we're hurtling towards catastrophe. But when you read the summaries that they make for policymakers, for world politicians, that's when they start talking about um, tipping points and catastrophic uh, runaway global warming and that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah there's, a, there's, a big a big, thing. there's
2: a big disconnect between what the scientists are actually saying and then what people are actually interpreting them to say.
3: Oh, yeah. Well, and mm-hmm. that's, in a large part, that's kind of the media's fault, right? Mm-hmm. Because they don't ask the right questions. So it, to a certain extent, some scientists are... Um, Well, some of their funding kind of relies upon a certain degree of, um, you know, connecting it to climate, connecting their research to climate change in one way or another. Um, And a lot of the time, if you read the executive summaries of a paper, you'll see that it talks a lot about climate change. It'll say, you know, oh, our research found that there's significant influence of um, CO2 on I don't know, biodiversity in the Andes mountain range or something. Uh, Mm -hmm. But then when you read the bulk of the paper or even just the conclusion paragraph, it's way more tame compared to what they present uh, at the beginning of the paper. And a lot of times I don't think that journalists read past the executive summary. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. You know, it's interesting here in Canada, the Royal Society of Canada actually put out a statement in support of the extreme climate point of view. And a guy I know, a friend of mine actually is a fellow of the society and he only read about it in the newspaper. So he called up the president and he said, uh, I'm a fellow of your society and I read in the newspaper that you've signed this declaration about dangerous climate change, but nobody even asked me. And the president said something like this. He said, well, you know, we, we considered it consistent with the consensus of world scientists so we just simply signed it. And yet they didn't actually ask their experts. So I started asking around to other scientific societies who'd signed on to the declarations of you know climate catastrophe. And I can't find a single scientific organization that pulled their members and showed that the majority of their members support these extreme statements that the associations are signing. So I, I think it's quite a hoax. I mean, I think it's just really nuts. So, Mary Jean, you know, it's interesting, I heard Linnea mention something to do with the Andes, you know, you did something pretty useful in the Andes, didn't you, like a few years ago?
2: Yeah, well, like 10, 15 years ago, we went on a trip to Peru to do a volunteering trip. So we helped out with an animal sanctuary and also building fireplaces in the...
1: Yeah, now, why were you building, I think you are building chimneys, right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So it's inst- helping install the chimneys, actually.
1: Now, what's the point of that?
2: Uh, so they didn't have good ventilation for their houses. So they were the people would be cooking in the houses without any ventilation. And so there were issues with that. And uh, so that's why we were there to help install chimneys.
1: Yeah. So that's how we should be helping these countries, not <laughs> trying to get them to reduce greenhouse gases. Yeah, it's crazy. So, Mary Jean, you had a question about solar and wind power. Yeah. A, so, a myth, yeah. a myth. A <laughs> myth. Yeah.
2: So the other myth is that solar and wind power can replace oil, coal, and natural gas in providing our for our electricity grid. So is this a this is definitely a myth. And so if you want to discuss that, Linnea, that would be great.
3: Yeah. Um so solar and wind are kind of the favorite the the kind of treasured child of the climate alarmists. And I'm not, I'm actually, frankly, a little bit puzzled as to why these two energy sources in particular are their favorites because they're not a very good for the environment um, between, you know, photovolta- to build photovoltaic cells and to build all the um, battery infrastructure that you need takes a whole lot of mining. And last I checked, most environmentalists do not like Um, anyone to do more strip mining than they need to do. And that it's definitely required. Um, At this point, it might be kind of a, uh, we don't have to look at it. So we're not overly worried about it kind of thing, because most of those kinds of mining projects happen uh, in places like the Congo and China. But um, in addition to that, I think one of the worst elements of wind and solar is how land hungry these resources are Mm -hmm. so it's not just like you know you drill an oil well and it runs for a while once it's once you get it um, producing and then you have your power plant and some pipeline infrastructure Um, when it comes to wind and solar They really tend to have to put these way out in the middle of nowhere. Solar needs to go somewhere that has no trees. It needs to be out in the open, usually in something like a desert environment, although those places aren't super good um, either because of the amount of dust that gets all over the panels. And there's a whole issue with how much water use goes into keeping those panels clean out in areas that already have water issues, um, which is something that's not talked about all that often. And... And then you get into a position where you are trying to find the best positions to put something like a wind turbine or a big field of wind turbines. And oftentimes this is in areas that are common migration paths for Mm -hmm. different species of birds, Um, in particular raptors like eagles and falcons and hawks tend to, um, die at pretty high rates around these kinds of facilities. Um, and it's then
1: green energy. it doesn't
3: seem very green and, you know, advocates for gr- those kinds of, uh, green energy solutions will say, well, you know, more birds are killed by, um, you know, neighborhood cats wandering around than wind turbines. Well, I've never seen a cat kill a bald eagle. <laughs> um, <laughs>
1: Yeah. Maybe the other way around.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I think that we're kind of comparing apples and oranges with that. Um, Mm -hmm.
1: I was reading that at the Altamont Wind Farm in California, they kill 116 golden eagles every year. And they've been doing that for 40 years. I mean, I understand the U.S. government gives kill permits to these um, wind farms so that they can kill a certain number of endangered species simply because they're generating green energy, but it doesn't yeah. sound very green to me. <laughs> no,
3: they, they have, um, take limits, as you said, they have kill permits for them. And man, if someone like you or me, you know, at, accidentally or just like stumbled upon an eagle feather and and got tattled on for possessive mm-hmm. possession of a single eagle feather you could go to jail oh, wow! and these uh facilities are able to pretty much kill however many eagles they need to with um maybe some fines but there's no real repercussions
0: mm-hmm. and
3: they're definitely not taking these things down because of it
1: yeah here in ontario i have a friend who's an expert in bats and he just loves bats i don't know what he yeah. sees from them, but he's got lots of bats he has a sanctuary and he says that some species of bats will be driven to extinction in ontario because apparently they die at twice the rate of birds because all they have to do is swim in the or fly in the low pressure zone behind a turbine blade and their lungs burst and they drown in their own blood So, I mean, yeah, bats are a trouble or problem, too, with regards to wind turbines.
3: Well, in the bat issue, people don't think about this a whole lot, but with wind turbines killing enough bats, uh, there have been studies that have been done that have shown that having a good, healthy bat population in agricultural areas has a very, it has a measurable impact on uh, pest levels that attack crops. Yeah. So when you start killing off bats or when bats start disappearing from an area that is a uh, crop producing area, you see an increase in the number of um, crop destroying pests that pop up. Because bats eat, you know, tens of thousands of moths and all sorts of, um, you know, mosquitoes and critters all the time, uh, every night. So getting rid of those animals has a huge impact on, you know, agriculture as well.
1: So obviously they'd have to start using more pesticides if they got rid of the bats.
3: Yeah. I didn't think of that connection, but you're right. That's wow, probably wow. true.
1: Doesn't sound like the environmentalists should be supporting that. Now, what about the possibility of actually powering the nation, ignoring its environmental impact? Can you power the United States on wind and solar power in your opinion?
3: Uh, no. And that's a, that's a pretty easy no too, for me. Um, in terms of the land use itself, um, solar power alone requires three times as much land per megawatt, uh, as like coal, natural gas, or nuclear do. So, and you, and you can't just install the exact amount of megawatts that you need. You need a large amount over that in order to account for any that are down for repairs when a cloud is floating across them <laughs> and, yeah. um, blocking the sun off. So you need quite a bit more than, Um, The kind of installed capacity rating um, that the manufacturers will claim to get a full, reliable energy source out of the solar panels. But the problem with that, too, is that, you know, they're intermittent resources, both wind and solar. They go up and down throughout the day and they increase and decrease their power outputs during different times of year as well.
1: So so when they... The nameplate capacity of so many megawatts of a wind turbine, that's obviously not equivalent to that many megawatts from a coal station.
3: No, because it doesn't actually produce that much. While the nameplate capacity uh, might be one thing for something like a solar panel, the actual output of power is probably going to be in the range of 30% of that. Uh
1: I can't imagine trying to sell a coal station to the government and saying, oh, and Will not be operating actually two thirds of the
3: time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and also, what?
2: and also because they're not operating, they need to have the backup, right? The
3: exactly. So when they aren't running, you need something else. So at night, solar goes down. Um, when you have something like a big heat dome, like Texas experienced last year in the summer, um, wind dies. So there are huge portions of the year that probably don't see enough energy from either of those sources to make them super reliable. What people say is that you can just install enough batteries to store all of that. Well, there's a huge problem unless we have a major breakthrough of battery technology. We are just not there to be able to store enough power to run a modern energy grid on battery storage alone.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And of course, doesn't the cobalt come from the Congo or something?
3: Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And it's, you know, there was a study that I read a few years ago. I can't verify it. But I did read something that said that there isn't even enough currently accessible cobalt to give every person in the United Kingdom an electric car. Yeah.
1: You know, let alone the United States or
3: Canada. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, that's, you know, same with the oil industry. I would never say that that means that there is no more than what we currently know about, of course, but um, it's, well, it thinking, doesn't look good.
1: <laughs> yeah. I'm interested, Us both of you, you're both uh, relatively young people. Are young people waking up to these problems? And, you know, one thing I've seen recently is this rap star, Tom McDonald, Uh, I don't know if you know him, Linnea. He's somebody you really got to look up because he has a a rap video called Brainwashed and he has 17 million views and 64,000 comments. And he's saying many of the sorts of things that Heartland says, except he's doing it to rap music. And the the young people you should see in the comments, they just say, Wow, this is incredible. So, my question to both of you in your sort of social milieu. Do you see young people waking up to the insanity of trying to power our countries on wind and solar power?
2: Well, personally, um, I don't. <laughs> I think most people are kind of too brainwashed by what they've learned in high school and university, but I don't know, maybe it's better in the U.S.
3: Well, I, I think it might be marginally better in the U.S. Um, while our, especially our public school system, really leans hard into the climate alarm side, I think that there's enough social questions outside of the, at least outside of the wind and solar only route, right? I, I know mm. in my experience, a lot of people who are a little bit more close to being skeptical about climate change, uh, alarmism anyway, it tends to be because they notice that climate alarmists never promote nuclear power. Mm. And my generation has never really had, you know, one of those scare moments that terrifies us away from nuclear. You know, there was Fukushima a few years ago, but the effects of that didn't end up being nearly as bad as they uh, the media was hyping it up to be. Um, so I think that my generation is not as afraid of nuclear. And when they see people wanting to put in wind and solar at the expense of anything else, um, Even hydropower, you know, places like California are turning away from it. I think people my age look at that and say, you know, that's kind of odd that they're so against that. There might be more going on here. But by and large, I I wouldn't say that there's a significant movement away from the mainstream view. Mm -hmm. Um, But I do. I am aware of Tom McDonald. He does good work. And for the listeners that haven't looked into him, he is not like you know a kind of cringy trying to be hip sort of rapper who is taking on social issues he is really good and he's kind of scary looking too so which which uh moves towards his uh credentials pretty well as a rapper um it's fun
1: well you'd laugh because i'm 69 Yet I find his videos amazing. In fact, I use them to work out too when I'm doing my pushups and weights and stuff. I put it on and I find that it's inspiring not just to hear what he's saying, you know, don't defund police, defund the media who lie through their teeth. Yeah, (laughs) It's not just his message. It's the fact that so many tens of thousands of young people are agreeing. You know, I think that's very encouraging for the next generation, that's for sure. So moving on to a slightly different topic, According to the climate activists, the Antarctic is melting due to human caused climate change. Is that really true?
3: <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, Antarctica is probably one of the worst examples they could possibly come up with. So there was a um, relatively recent study, I think in 2020, that found that they've actually had a nice expansion of sea ice over the last several decades. And Antarctica has actually had net zero warming at all for several decades now. Um, The only place that it has warming is the Antarctic Peninsula. And the Antarctic Peninsula also happens to be the most volcanically active part of the continent. Mm. The rest of the continent has actually seen a slight cooling trend. Um, Yeah, and ice expansion across much of it. Yeah, I haven't heard about the uh, volcanic
2: activity on the Antarctic, but that definitely makes sense. You certainly don't hear about that.
3: Yeah, it's subsurface, so it's all underwater. Um, And since it's a peninsula and it's surrounded, you know, on three sides by water, uh, it makes sense that the warming would be a little bit more intense uh, there than on the inside of the continent.
1: Yeah, people often think of volcanoes as just being above land, but you're saying a lot of them in that region are below the ocean.
3: Right. Well, a ton of them are. I mean, take, for example, Hawaii. Hawaii has a bunch of above water level volcanoes. But the reason why Hawaii is the way it is is because it's what's known as a hotspot volcano. Um, So instead of being a volcanic area along a tectonic plate, it's bubbling up from a random spot. In the middle of the plate and as the plates move that's why you get the shape of hawaii uh, mm-hmm. because the spot stays in roughly the same spot <laughs> mm-hmm. um but antarctic I, I believe the antarctic um western peninsula area is on a continental plate boundary mm-hmm. which are volcanically active um, in general so yeah it's it's subsurface and underwater and um For a long time, it hasn't been super well studied, but more information comes out all the time about it. And it's, yeah, Antarctica is a really, it's not a very good example for the alarmist side.
1: It's kind of like using polar bears as an indicator of terrible global warming when they're not endangered. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's ridiculous.
2: Yeah, exactly. And uh, another myth that we often hear is that human-caused climate change is damaging global food production, because in extreme weather, extreme heat, and cetera. So what, uh, what do they have wrong about this one?
3: Well, in short, everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, crop production fluctuates from crop to crop, from region to region, from year to year. Anyone who does so much as gardening knows that some years are bumper crops and are really good. And other years are total losses and other years are just fine. Um, When you, so the United nations actually has a really good resource. If you are interested in um, food crop production Uh, it's the United nations food and agricultural organization. And so I think it's FAO, uh, Yeah, it's FAO.org, and they have a tool that you can use where you can compare the crop yield and production of different crops from almost any country for the last, uh, well, couple of decades. It depends on the country, how long they have their crop records for. Uh, Obviously, some are a little bit more detailed than others. But when every single time we see an article that claims that some kind of a country Um, Most recently, something like India, Uh, they had a bad wheat crop in this last year because of some drought that they suffered in uh, the part of the country that grows the most wheat. Mm -hmm. So the media says climate change is destroying India's wheat crop. They're never going to recover. It's terrible. Well, you go on to the United Nations food production website, you plug in wheat production and yield for India. And you come up with a chart that shows that wheat production in India has been skyrocketing for decades. Wow. Um, it goes up and up and up. The last six years of data, of available data, they have broken records five times in wow. wheat production and yield. Uh, well, yield might be three times. But um, so there's despite the fact that the climate you know, has been warming since before the Industrial Revolution. 2 degrees you know it's still kind of up for debate just how much that's been but there there has been some warming almost certainly since you know even well before the industrial revolution probably but despite all of that and they say that you know 1.5 degrees if we go above that then it's going to be catastrophic um you know our food production is going to break down around the world we have to stop it from reaching 1.5 well we're at about 1.2 And it's been happening for a hundred years. And at the same time as this has been happening, food production everywhere has gone up the -hmm. entire time. Some of this might actually be due to, you know, most of it's probably due to technology improvements, but a good portion of it might actually also be due to the increasing carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere.
1: Right. It's plant food.
3: (laughs) Exactly. So there's been um, a good amount of evidence from NASA That there is a global greening trend that has been occurring for the last couple of decades. Mm. And you know, it would make sense to apply that to crop production as well.
1: Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, yeah, that's pretty interesting. So (laughs) this kind of catastrophe, it's another one that simply isn't happening. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'll put on the fao.org website under the podcast when it goes up on Monday, and people can try it out themselves. So you're saying you can choose a country, choose a a grain, for example, wheat, and you can actually watch to see if in fact it's been suffering.
3: Yeah. And you can, you can do it for, I mean, a lot more than just grains, it's bananas, it's coffee. And on um, one of the Heartland affiliated websites that I write for, which is climaterealism.com. We do this all the time, almost every week, I would say we have an article that comes up where we are debunking Some media organizations saying that some crop in some country is being destroyed by climate change. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times you'll see, you know, they'll say like, oh, coffee production in Somalia has been suffering due to climate change. And you look at the FAO statistics and you see that it's true. Coffee production has not been very good in Somalia. But you look at neighboring countries and it's been doing very well. So then you begin to make the connections that some of this, um, some of these alleged impacts of climate change probably have a lot more to do with uh, social unrest um, and, you know, war and war-related famine in countries. Um, mm-hmm.
1: Well, because Somalia, of course, is what ruled by warlords, I think.
3: Yeah, <laughs> basically.
1: Yeah, I don't imagine they care much about the environment. We have to actually go for a break now. But after the break, Linnea, can we talk about whether climate change is causing migratory birds to die? That's the next myth. (laughs) Sure. Okay, we'll get back right after the break.
0: We know you love the versatility and portability of the Genesis Fogger, but sometimes you just want to set it and forget it. Well, we heard you. Introducing the UX4 HOCL Atomizer. For 40 years, alarmists have been warning of a climate catastrophe,
1: yet none of their dire predictions have come true. Temperatures have not soared, sea level rise has not been unusual, and extreme weather events have not increased in either frequency or intensity. In short, there is no climate emergency. For 15 years, the International Climate Science Coalition has led the call for climate realism and a made-in-America climate plan. A plan based on real science that responds to the real-world needs of Americans, supports economic growth, and strengthens our essential infrastructure. A plan that protects the environment and ensures that Americans can enjoy the blessings of clean air, clean land, and clean water for generations to come. It's time to put ideology and pseudoscience aside. It's time for a sensible climate plan. For more information or to donate, visit our website icsc climatecom
0: It was Henry Wadsworth Longfellow that said, Lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime
1: and departing. Leave behind us footprints on the sands of time.
0: America Out Loud Talk Radio, the Liberty
1: and Justice for All. So, we're back with Lania Lucan, the research fellow with the Arthur B. Robinson Center on Climate and Energy Policy with the Heartland Institute, my favorite group at heartland.org. They're a wonderful bunch. So, Mary Jean, you had a question, I think, about birds.
2: Yeah. So our next myth is that migratory birds are dying due to climate change. So are they really dying due to climate change
3: or something else? Well, each case depends on, well, what case you're talking about. So one of the more recent ones has been a pretty large bird die off in New Mexico um, in 2022, where a very large number, you know, tens of thousands of migrating birds, you know, basically dropped dead out of the sky and when something like that happens you know it's it's pretty apocalyptic it's very scary it's very sad and immediately when something in the natural world is scary and sad <laughs> they blame it on climate change um but in this case it's a lot more complicated than that and it's i don't know how anyone tries to draw such a parallel line to it but at least in this case what they say is that there was a heat spike around Colorado, followed by extreme cold, and combined with smoke from wildfires. And that is probably what ended up making these birds die. Mm. Well, these are individual different weather events. And wildfires are a natural occurrence that, you know, a vast majority of them are caused by humans setting fires or being negligent with campfires. So... You can't blame it on climate change. And in order to blame it on climate change, you would expect this kind of thing to happen more and more often. And for these particular conditions to converge more often, and you just don't see that. They say that you know heat waves are getting worse. But if you look up heat wave data from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, uh, NOAA, you can see that while they'll try to hype their data, they'll group it in particular decade groups in order to kind of falsify an upwards trend, which I think is a pretty disturbing thing that they do. Um, and you see it from the EPA as well. But when you just look at their um, USCRN temperature anomaly data, it's pretty well flatlined since at least 2005. Um, mm-hmm. And then when you look at the worst extreme heat waves on the EPA's website, They'll try to direct you again to that upward trend bar graph um, type of graphic that they like to use, but ignore that one. Go onto your Wayback machine and look at the data that they used to show on the EPA website, which shows basically a flat line of you know with with seasonal variations of heat waves since 1890 with a huge spike in the Dust Bowl era.
1: Yeah, but that, that's when migratory birds were probably affected more. <laughs> yeah, there. who
3: knows? So the birds thing, it depends on it depends on the exact situation because all of them have different factors that are combining. Um, I've personally been witness to a pretty big die-off of migratory birds that got caught up in a um like a tropical storm mm. and they just kind of died of exhaustion. Uh, from trying to battle the high winds and the rain and everything but an individual storm can't be attributed to chi- climate change no matter how much they try to make it happen it's just not the reality
1: hmm yeah
2: there's also a huge die-off of, of birds due to the wind turbines when they have huge wind farms as well like we were talking about before
3: yeah <laughs> and that's one that they definitely don't like to talk about yeah
1: Yeah, it's kind of ironic. They talk about climate change causing bird deaths, which doesn't happen, but they don't talk about bird deaths that are caused by wind turbines to fight climate change, which does happen. (laughs) It's sort of ironic. They're they're not focusing on the real threats to birds, which is the supposed solution to climate change. (laughs) It's it's all backwards. It's like Dr. Seuss. Um, Now, that actually leads to another, um, probably a myth you can tell us, is climate change uh, causing severe wildfires?
3: No. And this is, again, it's a little bit of a, of a trickier one because it's hard to use the uh, old data is questionable sometimes, but you would usually think that they would tend to overestimate more than they would tend to underestimate big wildfires. But basically... When you go and look at the National or the U.S. Forest Service or Australia or you know any variety of countries that tend to suffer from wildfires, um, you'll see that there is either not much of a trend at all, or they'll try to make out that there is an increasing trend. And this is particularly true for the United States. However, I think that a lot of it has to do with our changing kind of philosophy on forest management um there was one there's one interesting correlation um between when something an animal like the spotted owl was listed as endangered and they say that the spotted owl likes to live in old growth or like dead trees so they made it illegal to harvest certain dead trees because they're worried that spotted owls would be there um And a lot of the dead trees in major national forests are no longer cut down. They no longer thin these trees out. So there's some interesting data that you can look at that will compare. I think Anthony Watts put this together. um, That compares the number of acres harvested of federal land timber to the number of acres that are burned. And when you see that they're harvesting less timber the wildfires are getting bigger.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, why would that be?
3: <laughs> well, <laughs> dry trees are easy to burn and um, you used to be able to kind of clear out some of the underbrush that's really dry um, and it, and it helps. And when we used to be able to control these fires and put them out quicker. They're building all sorts of roads. Uh, The timber companies were building roads through the woods that made it easier to access wildfires. But now a lot of those timber roads have been shut down and allowed to overgrow. So it's harder for firefighters to get in there, despite Mm. the fact that we have all sorts of, you know, cool technology, the helicopters and everything. Um, It doesn't, helicopters can't take the place of building a really strong fire line on the ground.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. You know, Mary Jean and Linnea, both of you have technical background. So here's a question that might not occur to most people. Wood ignites at about 572 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, of course, it depends on the type of wood and how wet it is and that sort of thing. But if that's the temperature you have to get to ignite wood, how could like a half a degree or even a degree rise in the ambient temperature increase the likelihood of the fire? I mean, does that make any sense?
2: <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. I mean, it's it's not really relevant. They're kind of just like putting these together to make it, some sort of claim to related yeah. to climate change, it seems to me.
1: They, like if you're lighting a fire and you just get closer to the wood, you might raise the temperature by a degree with your body heat if it's cold. I mean, I don't think that's going to make it easier to start the fire (laughs) if you get a one degree rise. I mean, 572 is a long way from one degree rise. So, Linnea, I mean, do you agree with Mary Jean that that one degree is not going to make much difference to the ignition of wood?
3: (laughs) Yeah, well, I I think that usually what they're claiming is that... The forests in the West are becoming dried out by increasing temperatures. Um, There's not as much precipitation, but then they turn around and they say, well, actually, we think that global warming is going to cause more water vapor in the air, which would lead to greater precipitation, which is how they support the idea that global warming both caused um, the last summer's or two's droughts in California, as well Uh as the deluge of snow and rain that they just got back in December. <laughs> so, um,
1: it's flooding it's global, it's it does fighting. it
3: does it all uh, yeah, but it fire requires a couple of conditions to get really bad uh it's not enough it's not just enough for it to be dry because if it's dry you know it'll it'll burst into flame if someone you know tips over a weber and spills coals all over the place or something it could catch on fire but it's not going to spread super quickly what it requires for fast spreading is a certain amount of wind. Hmm. and climate alarmists like to claim that the wind is going to become stronger due to climate change in some areas and it is going to drop off in other areas due to climate change so they're really trying to cover all their bases on basically every topic that they can
1: well you know Mary Jean do you think that maybe the reason they changed it to climate change instead of calling it global warming Do you think it's because they can now blame everything on climate change?
2: (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I mean, if you have kind of a general enough topic, anything can be kind of put under the big climate change umbrella.
1: Yeah, it's a joke. Anyway, now Barrier Reef. Mary Jean, you're going to ask a question about the Great Barrier Reef.
2: Yeah, so the Great Barrier Reef, they often uh, say that it's being destroyed by climate change and being bleached. Uh, so, how does climate change really affect the barrier reef? And is there any significant changes happening?
3: Well, um, so one of the major claims that they make is that the ocean is acidifying because of increased atmospheric carbon dioxide. Um, that's kind of a hyperbolic way of describing it. I guess it's technically true that if something goes from a pH of Uh, I don't know what exactly it's supposed to be, but something like around 7.45 and it declines to (laughs) 7.43 that I guess that's technically acidifying, (laughs) Um, but it's not the way that they try to make you picture it. You're picturing, you know. Uh, someone's going to like dissolve in it if they get into the water. Um, and that's that's the idea that they're trying to push with the coral reef, reef issue is that warmer temperatures and a slightly lower pH in the ocean is causing and is going to continue to cause uh, the death of coral reefs and the bleaching of coral reefs, which is not death, but it's where the algae uh, that colonizes it kind of dies off and goes away but the coral critter itself might still be alive um so a lot of coral reefs actually recover from bleaching events Mm. um and relatively quickly too
1: so they're not dead when they go white
3: no no they're not usually dead they could be dead but um they could also still be alive they've just lost their um algae but Mm. so coral bleaching can be caused by a whole slew of things it can be caused by heat waves it can also be caused caused by cold snaps one Mm. of the worst bleaching events in u.s history happened in florida when a huge cold front came through um i think on the gulf of mexico side and a bunch of coral around florida in the keys and stuff died off or at least were bleached but it's all bounced back since then um I think that they said something. Uh, the number was around half of reef-building corals were either killed off or bleached in that event, um, mm-hmm.
1: and that was because of cooler.
3: Yeah, and that was because of a cold snap. So corals are, they're kind of this weird combination of super hardy and also kind of sensitive. It depends on the species, and I think claims that say that corals are going to die off around the world from warming are suspect because corals evolved when the ocean temperatures were probably a lot warmer than they are today. And they have yeah. survived much more extreme conditions for you know tens of millions of years, if not hundreds of millions of years. I'm not exactly sure when they evolved and they've done just fine. The Great Barrier Reef itself has come back from most of the bleaching that occurred a little bit more than a decade ago. There was a recent survey that showed that the coral coverage in the upper and kind of middle part of the reef has been increasing by around uh, a third or so.
1: Oh, is that right? Wow. Yeah.
3: So, that and it's dangerous to me. There, there's been some complaints from people who are divers on the reef um, who say, you know, well, I'm seeing in the news that it's dead, right? They're saying that the whole Great Barrier Reef is gone and it's going to be gone even worse soon. Uh, But I'm out there all the time and it looks fine to me. Um, Uh (laughs) It seems to be the kind of commentary that you hear a lot. Uh, And that's because I, I think that when you are looking Really hard for bleaching, and you're looking for an effect like that, you might turn a blind eye to recovery.
1: So it sounds like it's observational bias to a large extent.
3: Oh, it could, it very well could be. It also could be just lying. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, There are certainly some scientists who have gotten into uh, quite a bit of conflict with um, the Australian government and university systems for insisting that. they don't understand why reporting on the reef is the way it is because the reef is fine.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. That's Mm -hmm. Dr. Peter Ridd, I guess. Yes, Because um, yeah, he actually lost his job largely over this. So it's a scary thing to stand up to political correctness in the academic world. You know, one thing I want to ask both of you, it strikes me that when I hear so many of these climate change reports, you know, being a catastrophe, it's very rare that they talk to geologists who can see the long-term history of the reef and the long-term history of climate and CO2 levels and stuff. I mean, Mary Jean, do you think that it would be helpful if they brought in more geologists occasionally?
2: <laughs> yeah, for sure. And also for geologists, like we can see the long-term trends, like in the distant past as well, and say, compare that to the future or the present, I should say.
1: Yeah. In the United States, Linnea, do they actually bring in geologists very often when they're talking about government climate policy
3: not that i've seen uh yeah, not they to would be, not to joke around too much you'd be too cynical but most of the time when i see people talking about uh climate change it's like al gore and john Kerry who have oh you know, yeah i'm not
1: the oceans. <laughs> the oceans are boiling he said yeah <laughs> Yeah, it's funny, because I looked up to see how much the oceans have warmed, you know, in the last 100 years. And it's been warming at a rate, if you believe the UN, it's a big if, because some scientists say that it hasn't warmed at all. But regardless, they're saying, EPA actually is saying, 0.14 degrees Fahrenheit per decade. That's a little off the 212 degrees Fahrenheit required to boil. And yet, when, <laughs> when, yeah, and yet when he said that, the audience they all cheered, yay, you know, yay, Al Gore. And you think, yeah but that's like absurd
3: (laughs) yeah well and and this kind of connects to the reef issue too right because the majority of corals live in tropical to you know into a little bit of subtropical uh waters they don't really like cold water in general you don't really find them above say 40 degrees of latitude and uh 40 degrees south so 40 degrees north or south sorry uh you've kind of just find them kind of hugging the equator and not all places are very good for them. But you would think that a little bit of ocean warming might make them expand, expand their range a bit.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So once again, it's not a bad thing for coral. It's the cold that is the trouble. yeah Yeah, mm-hmm. it's difficult. Well, actually, we got another myth coming up. I think it's a myth. Maybe you can tell me if it's true or not. Kansas and other places around the world are experiencing more severe and serious droughts due to climate change. Is that true?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Does not appear to be the case. Um, In fact, the IPCC themselves say that the mid latitudes, which would include, um, you know, the continent, most of the contiguous United States have actually seen increases in precipitation modestly uh, over the past couple of decades
1: increases okay (laughs) Hmm. yeah now we only have just a couple of minutes left but um it'd be interesting Mary Jean I think you had a question about communication if I remember rightly
2: yeah for sure so we've seen a lot about how these myths are false but how do you think that we should communicate with others about how the facts don't line up with what the media is actually portraying in the news
3: well i So far, the strategy has been to just kind of hit them over the head with uh, corrections (laughs) and the actual data. Uh, People's minds can be changed if they get the information uh, that counters the alarmist misinformation. And this is something that even the alarmists have acknowledged and that they are uh, worried about, is the fact that when people are exposed To data that counters the climate catastrophe narrative, um, they very quickly cool on their concern about climate change, which is part of the reason why climate change consistently ranks last among uh, polling concerns for Americans and probably Canadians too.
1: Hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that there was actually a poll done in 2015 by the United Nations. They listed 17. objectives, you know, stopping climate change, having clean water, good electricity, security, war, you know, that sort of thing. And they asked the world public, it was called My World, the poll, and they asked them to prioritize what they thought the UN should focus on. And they put climate change first, you know, they obviously wanted us to choose that because, you know, the UN says it's the greatest threat to humanity. Well, but 9 million people voted across the world and climate change came dead last. Okay. Yep. And, I'll, and it's interesting, because just a few years later, when the UN realized that, oh, we're not getting what we wanted, uh, they took it off the web. Well, happily, I kept the screen capture of the final results. And, you know, for fun, I'll put it under the uh, podcast, actually, for people to see, because I think you're right, Linnea, I think that the average person, as they learn more, actually starts to say, okay, I'm more worried about my income, you know, or in the cases like Nigeria. And it's interesting, because most of the poll people, people who took part in the poll were actually from Nigeria. And of course they didn't care about climate change. They were concerned about things like poverty, you know, and, and isn't that really for most people in the world, the kind of situation where, yeah, you can only think about climate change if you have all the basics of life.
3: Yeah. Well, and that's, it's the same with any environmental issue, you know, um, probably with the exception of clean water, you know, like species preservation and that kind of thing isn't a high concern for countries that are struggling in the day to day.
1: Mm hmm. Yeah. Now, just to end off, could you list a few of the things that Heartland is doing? Some of the things I can include under the uh, podcast. You know, you were saying something called climate realism. Is that one of your sites?
3: Yep. Um, so, we do a site, climaterealism.com. That would be mm-hmm. me and Anthony Watson, Sterling Burnett, and sometimes some guest authors who will write. I think, you know, we try to have at least one article a day debunking something in the news. So, mm-hmm. if you go to the front page right now, we have one debunking uh, India talking about the wheat production which is why that was kind of on the top of my mind because we just wrote about it. Um, Atmospheric rivers, hurricane claims. Um, Basically, every time we see something that uh, is blatantly incorrect, we jump all over it and link to the actual data that Mm -hmm. people can look at for themselves. They don't have to take our word for it.
1: Yeah. So and I'll bet the I'll bet the left are attacking you when you do that.
3: <laughs> oh, they don't like it. <laughs> especially, especially not if you call out the journalist uh, by name in the article. They don't love that. Um, yeah. and then we also have climateataglance.com, which is the web version of the climate at a glance books that Heartland just sent out to um, teachers across the United States that give some of the um, some really succinct data-driven refutations of some of the most common climate falsehoods, uh, mm-hmm. like the ones that we talked about on this podcast.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, I have to add one thing to that list, and that is the non-governmental International Panel on Climate Change report. Yep. I mean, those are wonderful. I mean, they are truly wonderful. People can check them out at org, And what you'll see is that a counter to the UN's IPCC. These are literally thousands of peer-reviewed scientific papers which show that there's no climate crisis. And the thing that I love about this is that, you know, the previous head of Heartland, he actually wrote nice introductory summaries for each chapter. So you don't have to get into into the weeds, so to speak. You don't have to actually understand the technology and the complex science. You can read the layman's language uh, introduction to each of these chapters. So what I do is during a radio interview, I'll have it on the desk. And if, a, if they ask me a question, you know, something to do with uh, honeybees, and I like, oh, geez, I don't know much about honeybees. I'll look it up really quick in the index, zip to that section, boop, I got it right away. So, I mean, those are really important reports. They also have a summary for policymakers like the UN, except true, unlike the UN, uh, which actually give you the information very quickly. So I'll include a link to that as well. Well, it's been great having both of you, my co-host Mary Jean Harris and Lania Lucan, a research fellow with the Arthur B. Robinson Center on Climate Energy Policy at the Heartland Institute. So this is Tom Harris and Mary Jean Harris, my co-host, signing out from the other side of the story.